Hebrews 1, and we'll begin at verse 1. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom he also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, he, as he has by his inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, Who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a a flame of fire? But to the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, our, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. And they will all grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You will fold them up, and they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not fail. But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? Thus far... Our reading from Hebrews, we can now open our books of praise and turn to Lord's Day 13. Lord's Day 13 is on page 528. This is, of course, in the second part of the catechism called Our Deliverance, which is about how we are saved as Christians, and we're going through the Apostles' Creed, and we've come to the part of the Apostles' Creed where it calls Jesus God's only begotten Son and our Lord. So let's read Lord's Day 13 together. Why is he called God's only begotten Son, since we also are children of God? Because Christ alone is the eternal, natural Son of God. We, however, are children of God by adoption through grace for Christ's sake. Why do you call him our Lord? Because he has ransomed us, body and soul, from all our sins, not with silver or gold, but with his precious blood. And has freed us from all the power of the devil to make us his own possession. Thus far, the catechism. Brothers and sisters, 
If I asked you the question, what comes to your mind when you think about the word slavery? In your mind, what are the connotations of the word slavery or even the concept? What mental picture do you get? Now, if you're like me, and you're probably not, thankfully, if you're like me, images, when you think of slavery, images of the American South during pre-Civil War days come to mind. If you think of slavery, if you're like me, you think of slaves working in the cotton fields of Georgia, the sugarcane fields of Louisiana. You see the shanties on the plantations, you see the big house, those big white houses that the the slave owners would live in and then the, the wooden shanties that would, would run behind where the slaves would live. And of course, that kind of view of slavery is deeply negative. The kind of slavery of the American South is grotesque to our modern sensibilities. And in fact, that way of slavery really was evil in many ways. Certainly the values that underpinned it were The point that I'm making is that to our modern minds, the concept of slavery is anathema. We are shaped by our history, and so much of our history in North America is shaped by this grotesque form of American slavery in the American South. And one of the things that's come out of the battle for slavery in the American South is that Freedom is now one of the primary, if not the primary, value of our society. People reacted so strongly to the the American South and also to events in Europe and dictatorships and communism and other things that freedom, personal freedom, is number one for the American or the Canadian. North Americans pride themselves on being free and being a slave is the worst thing that could ever happen to a North American. And to us, being free means living our lives in whatever way we see fit. Nobody tells a North American what to believe, what to say, what to wear, what type of sexuality to adopt, how many children to have, what career to choose, and so forth. That is the individual's decision. We've now gotten to the point in our broader culture where nobody is even allowed to judge or condemn the things and the choices that we make. Freedom is now so supreme that all other competing values are subordinated to it. Even science has to take a backseat to individual freedom. The government's job now is to enable my individual freedom and choices, no matter what they may be or how harmful they may be. And of course, religion and belief is long ago subordinated to personal freedom. You can believe whatever you want as long as your belief doesn't infringe on my ability to live my life the way I want. Now, it's tempting for us as Christians when we think about these things. It's tempting. The first temptation, I think, that comes to many of us is to turn up our noses at the rest of culture and say, wow, our culture is going to the dogs. 
We, we, we can easily whip ourselves up into our habitual outrage at the foolishness of our culture. We love pointing out how awful our culture has become or how much it's declined, but frankly, it's not very useful. In fact, if we're honest with ourselves, perhaps we'd have to admit when we think about things like this that we may not, we may not be as different from our culture as we think. Perhaps we've taken our society's definition of freedom on to ourselves, more than I think we realize. And this is really what counts in a sermon, as it's directed to a congregation of Christians, and so that's what we're going to focus on. And so I want to ask yourself, all of you another question. We can test ourselves in this matter of freedom. Have I taken on society's concept of freedom? We can test ourselves by asking this question. Am I comfortable with calling myself a slave to my master, Jesus Christ? Would it be okay for me to have slave of Jesus on my business card that I hand out to people? And to drive the point further, am I prepared to live as if I'm a slave to Jesus? Because that is the language of Scripture. That is what Scripture says. Look at Romans 6 verse 22. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. Or 1 Corinthians 7. For the one who was a slave when called to faith in the Lord is the Lord's freed person. Similarly, the one who was free when called, the one who was not a slave when called, is Christ's slave. And so if you are uncomfortable with the language of slave to Jesus Christ, there might be an indication that you've taken on our society's definition of freedom. And I think that for most of us as North Americans, the idea of calling myself a slave of anything makes us inherently uncomfortable. And so today what I want to do with Lord's Day 13 is reorient your view of slavery. As we talk about Jesus and his divinity and lordship. And as we walk through Lord's Day 13, I think we'll see that slavery to Christ is actually freedom. And the pathway to joy. And so let's do this together under this theme. It's good that we are slaves of Jesus, number one, because he's God. And number two, because he ransomed us. And so let's begin by looking at question and answer 33. What's the catechism actually teaching us this Sunday? Question answer 33, and I'll read it to you again. Right, so, why is he called God's only begotten son, since we also are children of God? And then answer, because Christ alone is the eternal, natural son of God. We'll leave the rest for now. And so, what, Lord, what question answer 33 is doing, brothers and sisters, is it's defending Jesus' divinity. That's what this question and answer is about. This is where the catechism says Jesus is God. And now narrowly considered, the reason the catechism felt the need to put this question in the catechism, it was an answer to people in the past in history who tried to argue that because children, or because Christians are called the children of God, therefore Jesus is not actually the son of God and God himself, he was actually a child of God just like us. People have tried to argue, use all sorts of arguments to try to convince 
people that Jesus actually wasn't eternal God. And the Catechism in Lord's Day 33 simply says, no, Jesus is the Son of God and Scripture says so. And I want to read a few relevant passages just to reinforce the point. Now again, here in Owen Sound and here in this building, you might think, well, defending Jesus' divinity, well, duh, of course Jesus is God. But let me tell you something. In Brampton, this is not a given. The vast majority of people that I talk to in Brampton, Christian or not, or who call themselves Christian or not, this is a big, big deal. And most of them disagree with me on this point. And so defending Jesus' divinity is a big part of what we do in Brampton. And so it's important to get it right. What does the Bible say? Let's first go to the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, where it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. Now, if Jesus is the Word, as it says in John, then it's very clear that Jesus is eternal. He lived before the creation of the world. Big deal. Okay? And then John 1 verse 18 further goes, No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. John 1 verse 18 clearly says the Son is God and he's eternal God despite what the Jehovah's Witnesses might say, and they would deny that Jesus is the Word. This comes up in Brampton, because there are many Jehovah's Witnesses. They do not agree with this interpretation of the book of John. They don't believe that the Word here can be called Jesus Christ. Or at least they try to explain it away. Then there's Hebrews 1, verse 1 through 3, which we read earlier. Or it says in verse 2, but in these last days, and this is God, has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he also he made the universe. And so it clearly says that the Son of God, the world was created through the Son of God. Then in verse 3, the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. So it is very difficult to read your Bible and somehow think that Jesus is not eternal Son of God. Hebrews 1 verse 1 through 3 is very clear on the point. Doesn't mean people will listen when you point it out. But it's very clear in Scripture and we we don't need to give an inch on this point. Now people of course will have questions. They say, okay, how can Jesus be the Son of God through eternity? Why do you call Jesus the Son of God? If he's eternal, doesn't a son have to be born at some point? Well, it's difficult to explain this. Theologians in history have called Jesus' sonship the eternal generation of Jesus. The Father eternally begets and generates the existence of Jesus. This is the language that they use. How does that work? Well, I'm not sure that I can help a lot here. How it works and why it is so is beyond our comprehension. The point is that the Father generates the Son. There's a creative act of some kind there that's eternal. How that works, I think we're going to have to leave that with God. As a side note, just because we don't understand certain things about God doesn't mean isn't a bad thing. It makes perfect sense that God is not completely understood by finite humans. 
That's proof that God, the God of the scriptures, is God and not a figment of our own imagination. Why would you put your faith in a God that you cannot fully understand? Or why would you put your faith in a God that you can understand? Now, just because we don't comprehend or understand God doesn't mean that God is not rational or coherent either. The fact that we can't comprehend God is a limitation of our own mind, not necessarily an indication that God is irrational or that he even is incomprehensible. No, the problem is not God, but the finiteness of our minds. But the more important thing for our purposes today and and for the point I want to come home with our theme, this massive truth that Jesus is the eternal Son of God reinforces everything else about our salvation. If Jesus is not God and he is not the eternal Son of God, then he has no business being your Lord, your eternal Lord. If Jesus is not the eternal Son of God, then we should rightly balk at being called his slaves. The Apostle Paul even says in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 23, you were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of human beings. Don't do it. So if Jesus is not God, then we shouldn't be slaves of him. Which, by the way, is a huge problem with the Jehovah's Witnesses' position. But if Jesus is the Son of God, that changes the whole dynamic of slavery versus master. In fact, it actually turns the question upside down, doesn't it? Why wouldn't you be a slave of Jesus if he's God? What possible reason could exist for you to live a life free in some way of God if he created you? If God created you and sustained you, there's zero reason why you shouldn't be God's slave. In fact, the only possible reason that there could be people on earth who are not slaves of God is if God was so generous and forgiving that he he allowed them to live in some sort of rebellion. And the shocking part of the whole affair is that God even allows that. What's shocking is that God doesn't immediately destroy any person who rebels against him. Why doesn't he do that? It's incomprehensible. You talk about something that's incomprehensible, that's incomprehensible. Although when we think of the love of God, suddenly there's a way to comprehend. Think of someone who builds one of those architectural models of a new building. The model builder builds this building out of paper or wood or whatever, And then he puts all these little people in the architectural model and the people are are supposed to be lifelike. And then one day as the model builder is leaning over the table, one of those little people he puts in there spits at him. We would think how ridiculous and presumptive of such this little stick person. And yet that is who we are. That is what we do. That's how we live. We are the little model and the little people in the model acting as if we own the model. It's bizarre. We have no right not to be slaves of Jesus, especially now that the Father has given him authority. Look what it says in Hebrews 1 verse 2, in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, 
whom he appointed heir of all things. Man, that is your Lord, Jesus. And not only that, but it says here later in verse 2, he sustains, he sustains all things by his powerful word. And so Jesus is not only involved in the creation of the world, he keeps sustaining the world as we speak. And so don't be fooled. I mean, Christmas is coming up. Don't be fooled by the baby in the manger. Yes, Jesus gave up his glory to become a baby in a manger, to become one of us, but that doesn't take away from his very real lordship. I think we, we can't even begin to, we can't even comprehend the scale of Lisa's lordship. And so who are we to stick up our noses up and to think, oh, I wouldn't be slaves. How dare Jesus be Lord of my life? We have no right to resist that. Our resistance to the concept of slavery, which we're discovering is actually due to overwhelming pride and arrogance on our part. We take our relative freedom as if it's our right. Even though every breath we take is given to us by Jesus, we think we're independent of God when in fact we can't even move unless he ordains that we would be able to do so. And so this is our beginning, and this is where we come to our second point. We, when we think about slavery, we begin to think that we, we have to admit that we deserve slavery, that our pride is the only reason we think we shouldn't have it. In fact, we deserve death for the punishment for our sins. But this is the thing, that the story doesn't end there, and this is our second point, because he ransomed us. Because in Lord's Day 13, we need to notice some important things. First of all, the second half of question and answer 33 Christ alone is the eternal, natural Son of God. And then, what does it say? Here's the shocking part. We, however, are children of God by adoption, through grace for Christ's sake. So, not only are we don't even deserve to be slaves of God, yet God, through his great mercy, has made us his children. He's ordained that we would have an inheritance Man, think about the grace in that. And it's because of Christ, for Christ's sake. And then in Christian Answer 34, we we learn why. Why are we called children? Why are we given this magnificent grace? Well, why do you call him our Lord? Why? Well, because he ransomed us body and soul from all our sins with blood. And so not only are we called children, which is better than being a slave, Jesus died and shed his own blood, God's blood, or his human body, for our sake. I think we're not sufficiently shocked by this. This is where sometimes, you know, people call the cross offensive. It should be offensive because he had to do it for you. It's disgusting. 
Jesus is your Lord not because he's the most powerful person on the planet and rules this earth. He's your Lord because he died for you. Even though he would have every right to be your Lord just because he's powerful. So what human Lord in this life, what human would give his own life for you? Nobody, ever. Or maybe some, a very good man would be willing, as Paul says in Romans. But not the way Jesus did. Now, here's what's interesting. The catechism says here that Jesus freed us from all the power of the devil to make us his own possession. So hold on a second. So if Jesus created us, why were we in bondage to the devil? And we need to think this through for a second because this has a lot to do with how we think. I, wanna, I want you to I work through this a little bit because this concept of slavery re, will reorient our society's view of slavery. What is the biblical New Testament definition of slavery? How are we enslaved to sin and the devil? Well, let's think about what we read in Romans 6. It says in verse 16, it says this. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey? Hey, listen, are you listening? When you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey. Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. And so, in the Bible, you are a slave to whatever lives first in your heart. Whatever you worship. Whatever you offer your life to. Whatever you worship is the thing that enslaves you and owns you and directs you. And here's the thing. Every single one of us worships something. We're worshiping people. And Paul's point in Romans is he's saying, listen, every single one of you worships something, and if it's not God, it's something else. Pleasure, money, power, sex, self, pride. You worship something. Something is number one in your life. And Paul's point is he's saying, listen, whatever you think you're worshiping, ultimately the devil is using it so that to make you enslaved to yourself or to the devil. So you may think, oh, I'm serving pleasure, I'm serving power, I'm, I'm building my own life, but eventually your own sin becomes the master or, and the devil uses your sin so that he can be your master. Now how does this work? Let's think this through a little more. Wanna, let's give an example. Imagine you don't know Jesus, okay? That may be hard for you, but let's just imagine for a second. It may be horrifying to think of it this way. Let's just try for a second. Imagine you are not, okay, you don't know Jesus, and you're married to the most perfect spouse in the world. Now, none of us fit this description, as most of us realize in the first years of marriage. Let's imagine that you have this incredible spouse. She's, she, I say she, it's more likely to be a she in this case. But because your spouse is so loving, you want to give them all the love that they deserve. 
I mean, you want to. This, this spouse of yours is such a good person. You, you, you want to just give them all that love. You, you want to you worship them, really. But over time, you start to realize if you're a sinner, as we all are, even if you had the best wife imaginable and you wanted in your heart to give her the best uh, of your life, the fact that you're a sinner means that over time, you're not going to be able to do so. You are sinful. Your mind and body are constantly wired in such a way that you crave attention and power for yourself. And so no matter how hard you try, you could never love your spouse the way you should. You are enslaved to sin. It owns you. Eventually, it will always win in your life without Jesus. And even the good things in our life, if we worship them, our sin will eventually use the good thing to destroy you and enslave you. And Satan will use it because without God, Satan will have his way with you. He will destroy you by inciting you to follow your selfish pleasures. The best example, by the way, in many ways is drug addiction. Drug addiction is a very good example of what Jesus or what Satan wants to do to your life. You go down to downtown Toronto and you see people living on the street addicted to drugs. That's where Satan wants you. Satan is not interested in building your life up or giving you anything good. He just wants to completely destroy you and spit you out. Serve the God of pleasure with a chemical and then be enslaved unto death. Satan loves that. He loves the downtown where all the people are living homeless and addicted to drugs. He loves that. Your sin will destroy you if you serve anything but Jesus. And the thing is, without Jesus, it it owns you. It will always win. Now, we who know Jesus have the Holy Spirit. Praise the Lord, and we are not under the full dominion of sin, even if it has significant power still in our lives. We are not owned by our sin. Our sin does not win. We actually have the ability through the Holy Spirit to do good and sustained good. Praise be to Jesus Christ that he liberated you from your own destruction. You see, whatever political freedom you think you have isn't a whole lot of good if you're still owned by sin. But Jesus died to destroy the power of sin and Satan. We are now, through Jesus and his death, we're now able to be loved by God and cared for and filled by him. And now, through Jesus, we can be owned by Jesus again. And because we're owned by Jesus, sin no longer has its way. That's why being a slave of Jesus is actually freedom. It's freedom from our own destructive tendencies. It's freedom from our own tendency to want the whole world for ourselves and taken from everybody else. Jesus puts love in your heart. Jesus fills you with grace. Jesus enables you to forgive. Jesus gives joy and peace in your heart. You see, Jesus, as a master, is a master for your good. 
Jesus is the only master in the world who wants the best possible for you at all times. Jesus is a master who became a slave, in a sense, on the cross for your sake. He's a master who gives you commands that are explicitly good for you. That's why we sang Psalm 19 about the purity and, and the joy of following God's law. Jesus is a master who gives you the ability to obey his own commands. He's a master who promises you an eternity with himself. Can anyone else promise you that? And so you tell me, is that, if that's your master, if he wants your best at any possible time, all the time, is that type of slavery so objectionable? I mean, most of us know what kind of messes we've made of our own lives on our own steam. We're awful. Do you really want to be enslaved by your own thinking that you know best? Or would you rather have somebody own you and fill you with himself who wants the best for you and who governs this entire earth? This is also why, by the way, the Apostle Paul can tell Roman slaves that remaining in slavery is okay. Look what he says in 1 Corinthians 7 verse 21. He says, look, were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. Although if you can gain your freedom, do so. For the one who was a slave when called to faith in the Lord is the Lord's freed person. Similarly, the one who was free when called is Christ's slave. What Paul's saying is he's saying, listen, just because you're a slave to a man today, but that's going to end. And that's not your true problem. Your true problem is sin, not your master. And it's fascinating. If you define slavery and freedom then in biblical terms, then being a slave of Jesus is the ultimate freedom. You can even be enslaved by another human and still be free. Because sin does no longer will drive you. And so let's finish by returning to where we started in the introduction. If our conception of slavery is the slavery of the American South, then yes, of course you don't want to be a slave. Or, you know, movies of uh, Roman slavery or others. That's what slavery is, then yeah, we don't want to be slaves of Jesus. But if we recognize that sin is our ultimate problem and the most destructive slavery of all is our own streak of independence, then true freedom is to be owned by the man who created you and I and who governs this whole earth and who has a heart full of the most pure love you and I could ever dream of. If that's your master, then to be owned by Jesus is the ultimate freedom. So brothers and sisters, the freedom of our society is a mirage. It seems so good. Let me do whatever I want. But in the end, doing what I want is slavery for myself. I'm entitled to my own beliefs. I'm entitled to my own opinions. That is slavery. You're not entitled to your own opinions for your own good. You belong to Jesus and so do your opinions and so does your political ideology. 
Don't let, get into the position where you think you know what's best for your life because you don't. Jesus does though. And you can read about what he wants for your life in the scriptures. The fact is that we are our own worst enemy and we are our own worst master. The slavery we create for ourselves is the worst slavery of all. Look how many of us hold on to the guilt and shame from decades ago. We hold ourselves responsible for things we did 20 years ago or didn't do decades ago or what we didn't do at work and what we didn't do at our marriage. We just hold ourselves responsible and we're in this box of guilt. We hold ourselves up to these standards that no... Humans can't reach on their own. So being free of our own devices is just another form of slavery. It doesn't bring joy. It just brings the tyranny of choice. The type of, the tyranny of choice which really is the reason why people are addicted to drugs. People are free to do whatever they want and so they fall to the quickest way to find instant pleasure. So brothers and sisters, do not make the mistake of thinking that you can believe or do whatever you want. Your political opinions don't belong to you. Your beliefs don't belong to you. Your family doesn't belong to you. It belongs to Jesus. And to the, the extent to which your opinions or your thoughts or your family doesn't belong to Jesus, that's the extent to which you will experience pain in your life. You need Jesus and you need him as your master, not just your savior. You need to be his possession and that is the best thing that could ever happen to you. We're slaves to Jesus and that's true freedom. Amen.